Well, I was announced by Brother Chris. I don't know what to think about him sometimes. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to, to get to know that man. We trained together as pastors and sharpened each other, I hope. So thank you for that introduction, Chris. I am one of the pastors over at Crossway Chapel of Greeley. We planted about 18 or 19 months ago with a dear, dear, faithful bunch of people. This is a picture taken from December of 2006 after we'd grown just a little bit. We took 35 people from this body and from a couple other places to plant a church in Greeley because God called us to be there. You may recognize some of those faces, some of them maybe not. Uh, The Lord brought some new people almost right away. But you folks sent us out from here. You commissioned us to go do the Lord's work in Greeley. And God has done amazing things with your sacrifice of people, with your sacrifice of time, with your sacrifice of your gifts as you've given to the cause over there in Greeley. And uh, I will say thank you now. I'll say thank you again here in a few minutes. But just praise the Lord for the way that he has used this body to go and birth a new body in Greeley where lost people are being reached. Just a little bit of an update. We have, uh, we have seen some amazing things happen. Since our birth there, we have baptized somewhere between a dozen and 20 people. People who have come to see the Lord as their Savior. Some have been little kids. Some have been big kids. Some have been people who have been around for a long time and heard the gospel over and over again. But the Lord has used that ministry, Crossway Chapel of Greeley, to bring the gospel into their hearts in a real way, in a way that's stuck, in a way that has transformed their lives. So again, we are, we are baptizing, baptizing a guy this morning, if you'll fit in the tub. Um, we have a ministry to the college football players over there at UNC, and some of those boys may not fit in the baptismal. They're just too big. This guy is probably 6'8", coming in around 300 pounds. He's one of the linemen. And so uh, if we break the tub, we will have to, have to fix that. But praise God for what he's doing. So we started Crossway Chapel of Greeley with the mindset that every person who was part of that body had a sphere of influence that they could go and start building redemptive, missional relationships with other people who are around them. That they had co-workers, maybe soccer teams for their kids, Boy Scout troops, Girl Scout troops, whoever it was, that the people that they were intersecting, they could start taking steps towards them in a way that was new and unique, in a way that loved them so much that they desired to see Christ shared with them. And we have seen that take off as different families and different people have really gotten a hold of that vision. And every person that you're going to see in the next picture has come because someone went towards them, loved them, shared their life with them, and brought them to church with them eventually. Those people have not left. We've had some visitors come in from the outside that have said, yeah, we saw your sign. Those people stay one week and then they leave because they're not connected. We have seen people reach out and grab a hold of people in their lives, people who are near to them, love them enough to share the gospel, to share something of Jesus with these folks. And in this next picture, you're going to see what the Lord does with that. When you get people who love Jesus and love people, this is what happens. So not only have our production values gotten better, we have also gotten a whole lot more people. We started with 35. Uh, the Lord has brought us probably around 140 people now who are part of that body, who have, who have come to be part of Crossway Chapel of Greeley. I get, I'm not the crying pastor. Uh, I'm usually the sarcastic pastor over in Greeley. So if I shed a tear, it's, it's uncharacteristic. Some of you here still know me well enough to know that. But it's been a blessing to see what the Lord's done here as well. There are a lot of faces out there that I do not recognize at all. In fact, probably the majority. I think I can pick out couples 
that I still know, but they're not very many anymore. So praise God for how he has grown this body as well. I hope you all are being blessed by, by this dear church family. I know the men here have a desire to see the Lord's kingdom grown and people reach for Christ. I think I can still say that. That hasn't changed, has it, guys? Okay. Good, because otherwise I have to preach a different message. And I didn't prepare for that. So I uh, just a bit of a warning. I do try to put in some humor into my sermons. If I offend anybody, I apologize. I, I took out all the swear words before. Um, <laughs> But I do have a sense of humor, and so if something sounds like a joke, it's okay to chuckle a little bit. I won't be offended. Um, I might be offended if you don't laugh, because I, I work hard at these things. So, Again, thank you, Windsor Community Church, from everybody at Crossway Chapel of Greeley. Your sacrifice and your blessing to us has not gone unnoticed, and the fruit of that has been huge. Keep doing what you're doing, Windsor. Keep sending people who are passionate about reaching people for the Lord. Keep giving to the cause of the network. Keep being encouraged by what you're seeing the Lord do in your midst. All right? With that, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the Word for the morning. Dear Lord, I do thank you so much for this dear church body. Uh, Looking out and seeing the faces who sent us, who were dear friends. The sacrifice that this body has made to bless your kingdom to be available to your work and what you're doing in their midst, Lord, is just an amazing thing. Father, I just pray that you would continue to bless Windsor Community Church in amazing ways, that you would continue to draw lost people to yourself through the ministry of this body, that you would grow this body in its faith in you and its trust in you and its ability to minister and reach the world that you would desire to reach. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to grow this body more and more like Jesus Christ. Father, for our time in the Word today, I just ask that you would take your hands and put them upon these notes, upon the words that you would give me to say this morning. Lord, if, if, it's, just, if it's just my words, they're not worth much. I need you desperately to bring your Word into the hearts of people. I thank you, Lord, that you meet us wherever we're at, that you meet us through your word, that this word and this message is timeless because it is yours. And so, Father, I just ask your blessing on the rest of our time this morning. I pray for those who are in Sunday school, the kids, the kids' teachers, that they're sharing the gospel with those little ones. And, Father, I pray for the churches that you've gathered across the world for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, gang, I would like to take the rest of the time I have to talk about something I'm becoming more and more passionate about as I grow as a pastor, and that is unity. I've seen the value of unity for the purpose of God's work. I've also seen the problems that show up when unity leaves the building and churches are left to fight against disunity. I've called the message together on mission, Principles of Unity in Christ Church. The idea is that as a group of believers, we have a mission. We'll talk about what that mission is here in a minute. And then we're going to see how crucial unity is to achieving that mission, to working towards it. And hopefully there'll be some practical things before we're done. But let's start at the beginning. Let's get to the mission. Every church has its mission statement. I'm going to give you one from the Word. I'm going to quote some probably familiar scripture passages to get us started this morning. These are probably some that you've heard. I'm not going to camp on any single text today. So I'll have the verses up here if you don't feel like flipping through your, through your Bibles. They'll all be up here, hopefully spelled correctly. But let's start where Jesus started. 
Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Great place to start. The Great Commission, right? The mission for the church. Matthew ends his gospel with these words from Jesus to his disciples. He tells the men, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says something very similar in Acts 1.8. It's significant not only because it's the words of the Lord, but because this is the last thing that Jesus says as he's ascending into heaven. He looks down at his, at his disciples and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Sounds like a mission to me. One more. There's lots of them, but I'm going to quote one more. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter tells his audience, But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. I think that last one's my favorite, not just because I have it memorized, which I'm bad at, but... It just gives you such a crystalline picture. Church, we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been separated out as God's own people. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are called as those who have had a saving, living, personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to be His ambassadors, His witnesses to a world that is still stuck in darkness so deep that people can't see their sin. The darkness is also so comfortable that a lot of people don't want to. We're called to spread the good news of all that God's done for us. Despite the sin of man and despite man's rebellion, He's provided us a way to be reconciled, to enter into a relationship with Him that He intended before sin became the characterizing factor of man's heart. That's our mission. I think that's an important one. Hopefully we can all get behind it this morning. This is the mission God has given us as a church. As those called out of darkness, we are to proclaim His excellencies. We are to be those who share the good news. Acts 4.12 reminds us that there's no other name given by which man may be saved than that of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Our mission is to see that that name gets glorified and shared with everybody around us. There are lost people a hundred yards from this building who will never hear the word unless we're faithful about our mission. Hopefully we're all on the same page now. This is the mission. Churches have mission statements that say, plus or minus, this same thing. So now let's go on and talk about one of the things that may be the most important element to a church's mission. A mission is the body of Christ, and that is unity. Unity is is crucial. Think about a marriage for a minute. If you and your wife aren't unified, how does that marriage look? In my house, it doesn't look too good. Maybe the rest of you stay unified all the time. I don't know. I'll I'll take notes from you later if we can get a chance to talk. Unity is one of those things that makes relationships work. I know when my bride and I are on the same page about an issue, life is so much better. We're so much more effective as a couple. She's sitting here smiling at me because she knows I'm full of baloney sometimes. I love you anyway. 
Unity is just crucial to any set of relationships. Now, don't just take my word for it. Let's look at see what Jesus has to say. I'm going to point you to John chapter 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples in their ministry down the road. He starts out in verse 11. We, we hear him pray this. Lord, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves, my disciples, are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Please keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. So we see Jesus praying for his disciples in the ministry that they're going to have. He prays that they would be unified, that they would be one. And he's not just praying for a little bit of agreement. He's praying for a unity that is divine. Lord, I want them to be as unified as you and I are, Father and Son, faces of the Trinity. That's a unity that is unreal, that is supernatural. Now, why does Jesus pray these things? We see in, in later on in the end of the chapter. John 17, verses 20 through 23, we see the Lord pair this unity that he's prayed for and our mission into the world around us. Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's all of us, by the way. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, here's the punchline. Why do I want this unity? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me. That they may be perfected in their unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Stop and let that sink in for just a minute. Think about what that means for this church. Think about what that means for you as a believer. Jesus prays for all the believers that will ever be drawn to him. That they would have a unity that is perfect. A unity that is divine. A unity that is inseparable. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The world may believe, that the world may see and understand that God the Father so loved this world, this world full of sinners and people who would shake their fist at Him. He so loved that, that He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to take the punishment and the penalty and the consequence of the sin. God became man and was born on this world. That the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity is crucial to revealing the person of Jesus Christ to this world around us. If we walk out of these doors this morning as a group of people who squabble, who argue, who are not of the same mind, who are not joined at the heart level, what is the world going to see? Are they going to see the person of Jesus Christ? No. They're going to see just another group of people who say they have something special and don't look any different. Folks, our unity as a body of believers is vital to the mission that we're on. Now I'm going to give you another line of thinking that stresses this importance of unity. It's a little bit different. So I've given you the spiritual side of things. Let me give you the practical side of things, too. I've already talked about marriages. But Jesus says something about this, too. He's, he's arguing with the Pharisees. He's correcting the Pharisees. Arguing implies that Jesus might be wrong, and he wasn't. So he's correcting the Pharisees' hard-heartedness. And we see it in Mark chapter 3. 
The Pharisees have accused Jesus of working for the other team. He says, no, this guy is no good. He, he works by casting demons out by the power of the devil. They're, they're just saying Jesus is working for the evil one. And he corrects their thinking with some parables that I think we can pull out and use for ourselves this morning in this discussion of unity. In Mark chapter 3, verses 24 through 25, he corrects them with two little parables. He says, guys, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, I understand he's using these parables to really point out the foolishness of the Pharisees' argument. But let me just submit, what happens if we substitute in the word church into these parables? If a church is divided against itself, that church cannot stand. There's something very practical here. If we want to be about the mission, if we want to be about reaching people with the gospel, we're going to fall apart without working diligently towards unity. A church divided against itself cannot stand. A church that's characterized by people squabbling, by people arguing, by people not committed to a unity cause can't stand. It's just not practical. So hopefully we can see that there's a mission. I don't see any nodding heads. You guys look very quiet this morning. The coffee's way better here than it is in Greeley, just for the record. So if you haven't partaken of some of that, you know, grab some. We've seen that there's a mission. That we're called to a cause. Hopefully we've seen that unity is important. So the next question to ask then is, how do we stay unified? How do we achieve unity? I'm glad you asked, because I have more pages of notes. My wife will tell you, I don't really need anybody to ask me a question. I just talk without stopping most of the time. I preach to the dog when no one else is listening. She likes it. I think she might be saved, I'm not sure. Okay, people are awake. That's good. All right. So, we have a mission. Unity is crucial to that mission. How do we go about doing that? Let's get practical for a few minutes. With the rest of our time this morning, how do we get practical about achieving unity? Let me start by saying that unity for the mission starts in the heart. Everything important that we see in Scripture starts in the heart of people. It's very easy for us to throw together a list of doctrinal statements and slap them on the wall and say, we all agree to these things, we are unified. We're all four and a half point Calvinists, we're unified. Some of you know what that means. It's easy to do that, to put together a church constitution and everybody sign it and we say we're unified and nothing really happens differently in our body. Because the reality of things is that people's hearts aren't touched by a list of doctrinal statements very often. There might be a theologian or two out there who says, well, I'm really interested in the kenosis and the hypostatic union. That really touches my heart. I'm, I'm sorry if you are that way. Now, don't get me wrong. Doctrine is important. We don't sacrifice the truth of Scripture just so that we all feel good and comfortable and unified. We're not going to say, well, you believe that there's other ways to heaven, but we want to be unified, so come on in. We'll embrace you with open arms. No, we're not going to do that. But the idea, gang, is that it's not about a file full of church membership forms. It's about something that goes on in the hearts of the people who are part of the body. Unity starts in the heart. What kind of heart are we looking to build on? 
In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul writes, Therefore I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity, there's that word again, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says something similar in Colossians 3.12, So those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And again in Philippians 2.1-4, my favorite. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely seek out your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Now those three passages all fit the same kind of pattern. We see the calling as those who have been called by Christ to himself, of those who have been pulled out of darkness into this thing we call the church, you have a calling. Here's what your heart needs to look like. Put on a heart that is characterized by love, that is characterized by grace for your brethren, that is characterized by humility, so that we may be unified and be faithful on the mission. Unity starts in a humble heart. A heart that is willing to put the needs of the people around it first. I have three children now. I think we had two when we left. If you want to gauge of how old our church is, look at my little daughter. The littlest one. She was born right after we planted. She is now one and a half. She has teeth, which she will use if you're not careful. Um, She's trying to talk more. Just cute as can be. But that's how old our church is too. But I have three children now. And... This idea of humility and treating others better does not come easy to three children. Those of you who have children understand me perfectly. One of the first words my little one now knows is mine, which she uses fairly regularly, mine. And then it's followed by a shriek, which tries to get her way and breaks glass. But don't take things away from her. This idea of humility, they just don't get it. And you watch how they behave towards each other. I want my way. I'm willing to do whatever I have to to get my way. I will hit you. I will bite you. I will pinch you. I will scream, cry, pull hair. Whatever I have to do to get my way because it's about me. Folks, if that's what we're building our church on, how well is that going to work? Yeah, I see smiles out there, a couple anyway. Philippians 2 tells us, have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If our Lord Jesus didn't have a heart of humility... We'd be in a world of trouble right now. Folks, unity of the body starts in a heart of humility. A heart that says, I'm going to treat my brothers, 
my sisters, with a preference that defies everything that's in my sinful heart, that puts them first, that takes their interest before my own. Without that heart, we're in big trouble. Without a heart that says, I'm going to accept someone regardless of their their bumps, the way they offend me sometimes, without even accepting that they're a sinner who needs grace. Our unity is in very big trouble. Humility starts in the heart. Okay? The question I would ask is, how are we doing with this? Are you here this morning with a desire to show Jesus to the world around you by your humble heart? Or is there something this morning that says, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but this is what I want. That I have a preference that I want this body to indulge. You know, we've run into two or three churched people over in Greeley that we've had a chance to come close to that they come from a different church. And when you hear them speak about the church they came from, it's horrifying. It makes me want to weep. Because they've walked away from these churches, not because doctrine was unsound, not because people were being encouraged to sin, not because Jesus wasn't being proclaimed. They walked away from it because I didn't like the worship style over there, so I'm not going to be part of that church anymore. I didn't like the children's ministry. I didn't like the way they handled a problem that I brought to them. There was an idea of preferences there that that these people spill out and their venom towards these churches that they've left is unreal. That sort of thing will kill the unity of a body. We're going to talk a little bit more about what we say and how that affects things, but without that humble heart, there's a lot of room for danger because we're all imperfect people. I don't know if your pastors are like the ones we have in Greeley, but we're just men. Imperfect men. And we screw up fairly regularly. Some of them more than others. I do pretty good, but um, <laughs> we're talking about humility, remember? We're just sinful men with a with a commission and a burden of ministry on us that's a blessing, but it doesn't mean we're perfect. We we live in a church full of imperfect people. And if there's a prideful heart that is not willing to extend grace in the midst of those things, unity's in big trouble, and so is the mission that we've been called to. We could talk for humility a long, about humility for a long time. There are books and books written about humility. For those of you who are interested, I think we've got a worksheet on the back table somewhere. I don't know where the back table is anymore. Over there with the lamp. The worksheet's got a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today. It's also got a lot more on it. My encouragement would be as you hear something that that perks your attention, please take one home with you. Talk about it in your small groups. Talk about it around the table. It's got more scriptures. It's got more principles. Unity is too big to talk about in one service, but I'm not sure they're ever going to invite me back after this morning. So take one of those home with you. Look at the humility. Look at the heart that the Lord desires for unity. But we've got to move on. Next one. Unity for the mission depends upon your willingness to forgive. We start with that heart of humility and it's got to flow out, folks, into a willingness to forgive those around you. This is another one we could camp on with sermon after sermon, but I'm going to bring you to two key passages this morning about forgiveness. In Mark 11, verse 25, we hear Jesus tell His disciples this, 
Guys, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Paul says something similar in Colossians 3, 12 and 13. We read 12 already, but we'll we'll read it again. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Two similar passages that give us the ground rules for forgiveness. They're crucial to the body. First, let's note that forgiveness is between you and the Lord. When Jesus told the guys about forgiveness, he didn't say, gentlemen, if someone asks you to forgive them, extend forgiveness. No. Whenever you are praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. It doesn't depend on them seeking it. It depends on you extending forgiveness before the Lord. Colossians adds the same thing. Forgive as God has forgiven you. It's important to note that God did not send His Son into a world that was begging for forgiveness, did He? Yeah, that's funny. It's sad, but it is kind of funny. No, the Lord didn't look down and say, Hey, they finally see their sin. They're looking for forgiveness. I'll do something about it now. No. The Lord saw sinners in deep need of forgiveness. Facing the perils of the consequences of the sin. And he stepped into that and offered forgiveness. Forgiveness does not depend on the other person. It depends on you and the Lord. Now I recognize that that's not easy. I don't want to glibly speak and say, If you have anything against anyone, forgive them. That's easy. Check the box and go on. No. There are people who have been hurt deeply. At least there are in our body. There are people who are carrying around wounds that people have sinned against them, that have hurt them to the very heart of who they are. Forgiveness is not easy. Especially when it's most important. I don't want to glibly say, well, just forgive anybody of anything. I recognize that that's a challenge. And not forgiving them is, in fact, an option. Unforgiveness is an option that we can carry around with us, and it carries a consequence that destroys us from the inside out. I know forgiveness isn't easy. My encouragement then is if you're holding on to unforgiveness this morning, take the first step of starting to try to forgive. You got pastors in this body who will help you through that process. If if you need someone to talk to, come see me. And I'll I'll try to help. Unforgiveness is something that will kill you from the inside out, and forgiveness is not easy. But we are called to forgive as God has forgiven us completely and totally, without anybody asking for it. The other option is bitterness. Bitterness is one of those things that destroys a body from the inside out. Bitterness destroys everything. Bitterness and unforgiveness can tear apart any relationship. Think about your marriage again. Emerson Egrick wrote a book on love and respect. And he talks in there about his wife always puts pepper on his eggs. Now, she's not sinning against him, but he's asked her not to do it. 
And she keeps doing it because it's just something she does. She thinks they taste better that way. And finally, they have to have it out over this thing because the man has finally started to get bitter about the pepper on his eggs. And every morning he sees pepper again and he begins to grow more and more frustrated. And eventually the frustration starts to turn into something that's dangerous to their marriage. Some of you are smiling at each other. You know what I'm talking about. Forgiveness means we've got to keep our accounts short with people so that we don't turn bitter against them. Because bitterness is the inevitable result of unforgiveness. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. The slide doesn't show up very well, but can you see what that is? That's a tree growing out of a slab of rock. Folks, that didn't start out as a tree. No one climbed down the side of the mountain and said, I think we should plant a tree here. No, that's not how it works. A small seed gets lodged in a crevice of a rock where nothing should be growing. And eventually it grows. And eventually you have a tree where it doesn't belong. Unforgiveness does very much the same thing. In a body that desires to be unified, in a body that desires to reach the world for the gospel, a little bit of unforgiveness and a little bit of bitterness starts to slowly fester. It starts out in the heart of one person and eventually it just grows and finally it spills out of that one person onto the people around them. And pretty soon you've got a tree growing in your midst and it bears fruit that is terrible. My encouragement, gang, is we've got to be very, very careful about bitterness and forgiveness in our midst. James says something in verse 316. He writes, Where jealousy and selfish ambition, some people might translate that word bitterness or strife or arguing, but where those things exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Bitterness and disagreements and unforgiveness in the middle of a body of Christ is terrible. It allows every evil thing into the midst. It allows that tree to grow in the middle of the rock that Christ would build his church on. All right. Let's move on. Unity for the mission is tied to your tongue. I know that sounds funny. People laughed when I said it in, in Greeley. But it's important. Unity for the, mission, for the mission is tied to your tongue. It's tied to the things that we say, the way that we talk to each other. James 3, 5 through 10 talks about the terrible power of the things that we have to say to each other. Let me read this. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. 
My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Now James might be exaggerating a little bit. He says some pretty harsh things. But I think there's a warning there that we need to keep in mind. The things that we say have great power. The way that we talk to each other, the way we talk about people in our body, have a huge effect on the ministry and the mission. Unity is tied to your tongue and what you say. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no unwholesome... That word literally means rotten. Let no rotten word proceed from your mouth. But only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear it. This one's a big challenge for me. I have a way of saying things that are not edifying to people. A lot. Sometimes they're not hurtful. They're just not edifying. They don't really have a purpose. I have a way of saying things that don't give grace to those who hear it. Sometimes when I'm preaching to the dog, the tone of my voice turns into something that she runs from. I know then that I'm no longer extending grace in the midst of those things. I try to run every sermon by her because I want to know. Have I stopped being gracious in the midst of this? You laugh. She sits and listens and looks up at me. I keep waiting for her to talk. It's happened before in Scripture. So the question I have for you, gang, this morning is, is is your speech characterized by grace? There There are things like gossip. There are things like slander. There are things that come into a body that they come from a heart that's not gracious. Dan and I talked about this a little bit before we, we came up this morning. and He said, well, what, what defines gossip? Well, I think it's important to say that you know we don't want to say you can't talk about anybody in the body. There are places where you've got to minister to people. You've got to be able to say, you know what? This guy needs my help. I need to pray with him. I need to talk to one of my pastors about an issue that I'm having with sin. I have a question about something that was said in the message that I need help with. Those things are all perfectly legitimate. Gossip comes from a heart that isn't characterized by grace. Slander comes from a heart that's not filled with humility. It's words that are there not to edify, but to in some way tear down the person that you're talking about. I don't want to over-define it, because I think in our hearts we know when we hear gossip. I think in our hearts we know when we hear someone who's speaking with a graceless mouth. My encouragement is, is what, what is your speech seasoned with? Is it seasoned with salt? Is it edifying and uplifting and encouraging? You're going to find that unity is a whole lot easier in your family, in your small group, with your kids, with the dog, when your speech is seasoned with grace, when it comes from a heart that desires to put them first, regardless of what you're saying. Unity is tied to your tongue. Next one, there's a second point under unity with, with your speech. Unity is tied to your tongue with respect to how much you share. These two are very much connected. How much you share with someone else about a person or a situation. I'm, I'm going to read it to you the way that I we have it defined on the sheet back there. I don't know if this helps or not, but it seems hard to define this one. As a biblical principle, people's need to know regarding another person's problems is determined on how absolutely vital they are to the solution and the scope of the offense. To summarize or distill that down, there are times when I don't need to know 
the things that people tell me, especially as regards other people in their midst. That's how gossip gets started. Because someone tells me something I don't need to know. What do I do with that? If I'm not part of the problem, and I'm not part of the solution, then I probably really don't need to know. Let me give you an example. Look, we have a pastor board. Sometimes we get on each other's nerves. I'm going to use Ben and Willie, because they're not here to defend themselves. And they know I take shots at them when they're not around. So Ben and Willie, they, they get into a discussion. And finally Ben says something that Willie doesn't like. Willie feels sinned against. I'm not part of that problem, am I? I wasn't there. I didn't hear the discussion. I don't know what's going on in the hearts. I don't know if there is sin present. I really don't know anything. If Willie comes and calls me on the phone and says, Dustin, I've got a problem with Ben. I don't need to know. And it's a blessing to be able to say, Willie, I don't need to know about that. If you can't handle things with Ben and you go to him and you try to handle the issue and he doesn't respond well, then then maybe call me back and we'll, we'll handle it differently. But right now, I don't need to know. I'll pray for the situation, but don't give me any more details. Folks, as a, as a body that is close to each other, that is close-knit, we share a lot of life's difficulties, a lot of life's problems with each other. We know what goes on in each other's homes, in each other's families. We know what goes on with our kids, with our marriages. That brings a unique challenge because there's always the opportunity to share something that someone doesn't really need to know. And eventually, again, that, that seed of gossip begins to grow. Be very, very careful how much you share about another person with someone who doesn't need to know. Unity is threatened by that. Matthew 18, which talks about how we handle sins in our body, says you always start out by going to that person by yourself and approaching them as a brother in love. Not tell four or five people and then as a body go and get them. It always starts out with one person. When you start bringing more people in, you start to threaten the unity of the body. One more under speech. Unity for the mission is tied to your tongue when you have to confront someone with a problem and sin. That's something that no one wants to do. As a pastor, there have been times when we have had to confront people with their sin. It's never a fun time. No one likes to be confronted with their sin. We're all sinful. We all need it sometimes, but no one likes to hear it. I've been reproached with sin several times, probably this morning. No one likes to hear that. But we're called to do it as a body of believers. When you see your brother in sin, you go to them. But the way we do that has a great deal of effect on our unity as a body. If I show up before Chris Richards and say, Chris, you sinful son of a gun, you need to knock that off. And rebuke him in anger? Have I just stayed unified to my brother? I might have the freedom to say that to Chris. But probably not of a lot of other people. If I show up and blast away at someone in the midst of their sin, not only am I not really ministering to their hearts, I'm probably sinning against them in the process. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 calls us to approach someone we see struggling with sin personally and with a heart of great, great gentleness. I don't think I've got that one up there, but let me read it to you. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass... 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Folks, there are times when you see a brother in sin that you have to go to. The unity of the body depends very greatly on how that's handled. Keep these passages close when those things happen to happen. One quick extra that I found out, I had to write it in the, in the margin, and it's, it's not going to be up there, and it's not even, I can't really back it up with scripture, but it's just something practical that we've seen lately. Email is a terrible threat to unity in the body. It's just amazing. We have had repeated issues of things where someone sends an email to someone in the body and you can't communicate heart in an email. No matter how hard you try, you can use the fancy fonts and the little smiley face guys, but it still doesn't work. And over and over again, the last few months, we have had people get bent out of shape. The unity of the body threatened because an email got read wrong. My encouragement is, and this is very practical, and then Scripture does not use email anywhere as far as I can tell. Um, Maybe there's a newer translation out. If you've got something important to bring to a brother or sister, at least use a phone call so they can hear your voice and hear the concern and the compassion and the heart in the midst of that. Do not do it by email, please. We have to sort out messes afterwards because emails just get read wrong. It's terrible. Text pages and emails, just miserable. I've gotten to where I don't send emails to people anymore. If you email email me, I will probably call you. Because I can't stand what I've seen happen in the midst of our body. People who love each other immediately get bent out of shape because of one careless word or one misread emotion. It's crazy. Write that one down. Email is trouble. Okay. All right, last one. Unity for the mission is easier when it's invested in. Now think about this for a moment. Let's say you're part of a business. You're just an employee. You show up, you punch the clock, and you work for a while, and then you leave. Now, you want to keep your job so you work faithfully, right? But are you really invested in that? No. Now let's say you're a stockholder. You own 50% of this business. Are you invested in it now? Very much so. Are you concerned about how it does? Yes, you are. Are you concerned about the health and the life of your business? If you're not a fool, you are. Maybe you got more money than you know what to do with, but if you're invested in it, you care that much more. Folks, the principle is the same in a church. If you are invested in this body, it's going to be that much easier to stay unified to it. We have folks who, who come to visit our church. They're not tied to it in any way, shape, or form. They just show up because they saw a sign. They don't have any investment there. If they see something they don't like, if there's a preference that's not being met, they hit the door. They go to the next church down the road. We have people who are connected to the body, who are giving their heart to it, who are giving their time to it, who are giving their treasure to it. Those people are in for the long haul. They desire to see the unity of the body. They desire to see that body go forth on mission for Jesus. Unity is easier when invested in it. Let me give you the example from Acts 2. Verses 43 through 47. Talking about the early church as it gathered together there in Jerusalem. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all of those who had believed were together. 
and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were saved. These people were called out of darkness, and they were invested in what God had called them to. Unity is much easier when it's invested in. Folks, I'm going to close with that. But let me just encourage you that the body of Christ is an amazing thing. I look at this room, and I think about what's going on in Greeley right now, and I think about the people who, they started out with no common bond other than loving Jesus. He called them out of darkness, and he said, I don't want you to walk around alone. This world will eat you up because the evil one is after anybody who shines a light. So I'm going to put you in this thing called the church. I'm going to put you with people that I've also called. You're going to love on each other. You're going to share each other's burdens. You're going to help each other out. And I'm going to use all that to glorify my name because there's something amazing when the lost world sees people love each other like that. When it sees people who have a heart of humility towards each other. When he sees people who watch what they say to each other and try to lift each other up. When he sees people who are invested in what he's called them to. Folks, my encouragement for you this morning is, boy, if if any of these have, have perked your attention, dig into them. What's keeping you from being unified to this body? What's keeping you from going out arm in arm on the mission that God's called you to? Unity is not easy. We have an enemy that wants to see us torn apart. We're also imperfect people who are going to rub each other wrong. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to need forgiveness a lot. Unity is not easy, but it's worth working for because it's crucial to this mission that the world may know that Jesus Christ was sent to save it. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you have done in the midst of this body. What a blessing to come back and see that you have continued to reach people for your kingdom. That you continue to grow people nearer to yourself, deeper in their relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would bless this body with a unity that is that is divine, that is supernatural in the way people extend forgiveness toward one another, the way they watch what they say to each other, how they've invested in each other's lives. Father, would you preserve that unity in this church? In the network of churches you call to yourself, in your body of believers as a whole, Lord, the evil one would take his shots there. And Father, if there's any here this morning who have not heard and felt the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives, would you grab a hold of their hearts and souls? Would you save them from the darkness that they wander in? And I ask these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Chris, come on up here. Is Danny in here? Anybody that knows the Talmans, would you uh, come up front? Marsha, would you come up front? And let's uh, pray for these dear saints. Anybody that knows Marsha and Dustin? And I was listening to uh, Dustin's message. Thank you, brother. That was really encouraging. A couple things come to mind. One is that I'm so grateful that the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness, that he's given us his word and the principles in his word and the commands in his word for unity. And I'm also grateful for his Holy Spirit that gives us the strength and power to be unified. And third, I'm grateful for this body that we, uh, by God's grace, I sense uh, a great 
level of unification, of uh, just unity. So praise be to God for that. This is Marsha Tallman. This is Dustin's better half. I'd say that because he's a sarcastic guy. We just uh, love this family. And uh, would you just look at their faces and remember them? Well, look at her face. This will scare the, scare the light, daylights out of you. And remember them. Just uh, lift them up to the throne of grace on a regular basis. God is doing amazing things in Greeley, and we praise Him for that. Let's pray. God, we worship You, and we bless You. Lord, in some ways, when this church gave birth to Crosswood Chapel of Greeley, it, it felt like a preemie. Uh, God, we, uh, we were uh, hurting. Uh, we were uh, in the recovery room for uh, several months, and, and uh, they were under this grow light called the, the grace of God. God, you've done some amazing things there, and I praise you for the number of people that you've infused new life into their hearts. And God, we praise you for the plurality of leaders there. We praise you for the body of Christ over there. And God, we thank you for just the great example of multiplication that you've showed us all, that we've been firsthand to be able to witness. And God, I just pray that if you'd be so kind that you would allow us to do this again. Lord, not for the sake of a notch on the belt, but for the sake of a new work in a new town to see people come to a genuine saving faith in Lord Jesus Christ. Please strengthen Dustin and Marcia. Please uh, continue to uh, protect their marriage. I pray, God, that they would continue to keep short accounts with one another. I pray that you'd give them wisdom and discernment as they raise uh, their wonderful three little blessings. And, Lord, I thank you for the ministry you've called them to. I thank you for the style of, of ministry you've given them to just be out in the community meeting people and being Jesus to a lost and dying community. So have your way with them. We pray these things in Jesus' matchless and precious name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.